I want to invite you now, if you're able, to stand for our first reading of sacred scripture. Our first reading from scripture is going to come from two places. We're going to read a very short section in Genesis 14. That's page 12 in the Blue Pew Bibles. Let's stand as we're able. And then we're going to turn to Hebrews 7 and read the first part of the chapter as part of our first sermon reading, and that will be on page 1191. I know it got cut off there in the top corner of the bulletin, but it's just a couple lines below, so you're good either way. We're reading from Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, as our first scripture reading, and you'll see why. Hebrews 7 which we're going to be spending our time in this morning, is all about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Well, where does Melchizedek first appear in the Bible? It is in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. Let's give our careful attention. This is God's Word. After Abram's return from the defeat of Kederleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And now please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Here we will read now the first 10 verses. Again, that's page 1191 if you're using the Blue Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Amen. I encourage you now again to remain standing. You don't have to turn to another page. We are going to continue reading in Hebrews chapter 7. We are going to work through the entire chapter this morning. So we're going to read now verses 11 through 28 and finish reading Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. Now let us seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of our God, we thank you that you breathed out these words. We thank you that you've preserved them down through all the ages of history. We thank you that you have provided for us translators who could render the words from the original into the language of our hearts. Our God, we have stood at attention as your word was read out of respect for you who speak in Scripture. We pray now that as we sit, that you would fill us with your spirit and illuminate our hearts, that we may be attentive to all that you say to us in Scripture, that we may believe what you have for us, this good news from this passage here today. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I say to you, when's the last time you've seen an Easter egg? What would you say? For some of you, you may be thinking actually about the holiday and the, you know, the, the little kids' things where they put candy in little plastic shells. But that's not the kind of Easter egg to which I'm referring this morning. I'm talking about what we call an Easter egg in film or in a book. Any of you ever know what I'm talking about? It's one of those things where in a story of some sort, whether it's on the screen or in print, but somewhere in the story, there's a little detail that is, that is really not just there for the sake of that moment, but it's sort of a, a cross-reference or a pointer 
to something else in the story. I'll give you an example. In the Gospel according to Mark, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000, Mark, the writer, and this is Mark chapter 6, verse 39. You could look it up later. It make, Mark makes a point to say that, that they were commanded to sit down on the green grass. Why did Mark tell us the color of the grass? Because in Psalm 23, we are told that the Lord is my shepherd and he leads me in green pastures. And so that little detail is an Easter egg. That's what I mean. It's a little detail that appears in one part of the story, but that actually pointing to something different or something bigger. One of the most significant Easter eggs in the whole Bible is this character of Melchizedek, who appears to us here in Hebrews chapter 7. Where does he first appear? Well, we read, whether you know this or not, we have now read every place where Melchizedek appears in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews. We read a couple references in previous weeks and now today. But this is the thing. He, he shows up sort of out of nowhere in Genesis 14. It's a very brief appearance. We're not told much about Melchizedek except he is a priest of God Most High. He brings out bread, wine. He blesses Abram. Abram gives him a tenth of all the spoils of the war. And then he disappears. In fact, you could, if you wanted to, you could go and just put your hands over the verses where Melchizedek is mentioned and it wouldn't really disrupt the major flow of the narrative. It's all about Abram coming back from this battle. So it's, it's a very interesting appearance. He comes in, and God, of course, is very intentional in putting it in there. But we should be asking, why did God have this Melchizedek appear to Abram and then just apparently vanish? The only other time in the Old Testament where the name Melchizedek is mentioned is in this prophecy of Psalm 110, verse 4, which we confessed earlier. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The only other time in the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, just those two places. And then the writer of the Hebrews can't stop talking about Melchizedek. Eight times in the, in the book of Hebrews, the writer speaks about Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, to prove that Jesus is a better priest than any of the Old Testament priests. And so, what I'm trying to point out to you before we dig in is that this, is, this really is like one of the Bible's ultimate Easter eggs, and we should be asking, what does it mean? Now, we split up the reading of Hebrews 7 into two parts because, and, and for one reason, Hebrews 7 is a dense chapter. Did you pick up on that as we're reading it? There's a lot to follow along there. It's dense. But the one theme that comes throughout, one thing, the main thing that Hebrews 7 is trying to tell us is that Jesus can do what no priest in history anywhere at any time could ever do. And that one thing that Jesus can do that no other priest could ever do is that he can actually make men and women perfect. Did you pick up on that as we were reading through it? It's, it's threaded through. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, but it wasn't, perfection though is in view. Verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And verse 25, perhaps the most clearly, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, or quite literally, completely, those who draw near to God through him. Verse 28, 
tells us that he is a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus can do what no priest ever could do. Jesus can make men and women perfect. I just want to pause there for a moment and say, do you actually believe that? Or how would your life change if you actually believed that? Not just about other people, but about yourself. Now, many people in our world today would say, that's a terrible thing to believe. It's a terrible thing to even imagine. Many people in our world would say, look, nobody's perfect. And in fact, even aiming for perfection is a really dangerous thing. It's dangerous because it can make you demanding. It can make you bossy. It can make you unforgiving. It can make you unsympathetic. In fact, an unhealthy focus on perfection can even lead to mental health crises. And so many in our society would say today, forget this whole idea of perfection. Forget all this priest stuff. Embrace your flaws. Love yourself. Forgive yourself for whatever you may have done and just follow your heart. You ever heard anything like that anywhere in your life? And at one point we should admit, perfection can be a dangerous standard. There are many ways where you can take a dark turn in the pursuit of perfection. You can fall into various forms of ungodly perfectionism. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And yet to abandon hope, to abandon even the possibility that there is a standard of perfection, that it is possible to be made perfect, well, that's not just taking a dark turn. That is leaping into the darkness. And it leads to nothing but ultimate personal, ethical, societal relativism and ultimately to a will to power darkness that destroys everything it is to be human. And so the world wants to tell us that, there, that, 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 the, on, that you, the only alternative to sort of a tyrannical perfectionism is a sort of soft, ethical relativism. Well, the Bible says no. No, there's a third way. There is good news. And as we dig into this question today, as we look at what the Bible says about how Jesus can make us perfect, I want you to see that this is not just a question for Christians. This is a question for all people. It's one of the deep, ultimate questions of all that it means to be human. Is it possible for human beings to be made perfect, really and truly? Or is it all just an evil lie? Is perfection ultimately an evil lie? Or is it a real promise and a real possibility? All of us, wherever we are spiritually, should be interested in the answer to this question. And to answer this question, we now have to open and unpack this mysterious Easter egg of the character of Melchizedek. And we're going to do that in three parts, kids. You got your outlines, the three sections. We're going to look at Melchizedek, this mystery priest. We're going to look at why the scriptures say that there are useless priests. And then we're going to look at the perfect priest and see how good of news we have here in this text. Let's start then with the mystery priest. And of course, we're talking here now about this Melchizedek. Melchizedek, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And we have to say right up front, complete disclosure, number one, what is clear is not Melchizedek's identity. That is not clear. But what is clear is his superiority. Why do I say his identity is not clear? Well, if you've read or you've been in a Bible study before on Hebrews 7, you know that one of the most common questions that comes up when you're reading Hebrews 7 or you're doing a Bible study is, who is Melchizedek? 
Is he just a man, sort of a mysterious human figure? Or is he perhaps one of those Old Testament appearances of Jesus, what the theologians call a theophany? And frankly, brothers and sisters, there are good, there are good reasons to argue it either way. You can make a strong case for either interpretation. That's why it's continued to be debated. But you look at verses 2 through 3, and you look at verse 8, and both interpretations have some strength. And let me just walk you through them real quickly. The argument that would say that no, Melchizedek was not Jesus in the Old Testament, but rather just a mysterious human figure, that argument, that answer, looks at, looks at this language about um, without father or mother or genealogy. You see it there in verse 3. And that interpretation would say, well, it's talking there not about metaphysics or his being. It's talking about the text of Genesis. One of the things you notice when you read the text of Genesis is what? You're always finding out who begat whom, how long they lived, and then they died, right? Well, but when you get to Melchizedek, we don't, we don't hear anything about him being begotten of anybody. We're, we're not told when he lived. We're not told how long he lived. We're not even told if he died. He just comes in and he disappears, And so one way of reading Hebrews 7 says that's what it's talking about. It's simply pointing out that in the text of Genesis, he's an Easter egg. He's mysterious. Another support for that position is at the very end of verse 3, where it says he resembles the Son of God. It would be a strange thing to say if he were, in fact, God himself. Now, but there's there's another side. (laughs) There's another side. There are those who would argue that it is that he is an appearance of the Son of God. And they would simply point out, look, if he were just a man, even a mysterious, really interesting character, in fact, did you know some of the ancient church fathers thought that Melchizedek was Noah's son Shem, whose life would have overlapped if you you add everything up. But the argument that says, no, 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 he wasn't just a mortal, however exalted person, but he actually was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, they've got a strong case too. In fact, they would say, look, why even write verses 2 and 3 here in Hebrews 7? If all you want to do is talk about how Melchizedek, you know, had honor over Abram, you don't even need to say all that stuff about him being without father or mother or genealogy. So it's a strange thing to even mention if it's not supposed to say something more than he was just a guy. And they would also point then to verse 8 where it says, in the other case, these things are spoken of one by one of whom it is testified that he lives. It would be a strange thing to say that he lives if Melchizedek were in fact just a man who has ultimately what? Died. Another argument in their favor is the translation of his name, King of Righteousness and King of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us that Jesus is called what? The Prince of Peace. So, which is it? Several weeks ago, When I came back from General Assembly, I told you I wasn't going to jump into Hebrews chapter 7 because I needed, I think I said, a few more weeks to think about Melchizedek. Well, I've taken the few more weeks, and I can tell you, the longer I think about it, the less clear it is to me. I don't know whether he was Shem, whether he was some other guy, whether he is, in fact, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. But I do know this, that's not the focus of Hebrews 7. We always come with our questions, and we say, I want God to tell me this. We do this in all areas of the Christian life. The Bible says, no, God wants you to focus on this. And what God wants us to focus on in Hebrews 7 is not the identity of Melchizedek, but the fact that he is superior, that he is superior to Abraham and therefore 
to the priests, the Levites, who came from Abraham. And you see that very clearly then in the next paragraph, verses 4 through 10. The point that the writer is making is that Melchizedek was superior even to Abraham. When you think about the Old Testament family of God, you think Abraham's pretty near the top of the stack. But the writer says, See how great this man was to whom even Abraham paid tribute. Verse 4, Abraham the patriarch gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of the spoils. And just in case we weren't really registering with all that that meant, he tells us in verse 6 and 7, this man who does not have his descent from Abraham receives tithes from Abraham. Abraham was the one carrying around the gospel promises, and yet he says, Melchizedek blessed him. And then just in case you're still not getting the point, who's superior to whom? Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So who's superior? Abraham or Melchizedek? Melchizedek. And therefore, this is the writer's big point, if Melchizedek is above Abraham, then Melchizedek is above all the priests that come from Abraham. Aaron, the Levites, all of them. That's the point he's making. And therefore, if Jesus is declared to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, then Jesus is automatically superior to the whole Old Testament system. You see it? It's a neat bit of logic. It's very tidy. How do we know, though, and how did the first century readers know that it wasn't a little too tidy? Do you ever hear an argument that just seems a little too simple? How do we know that that's not what's going on here? Well, number two on your outlines, kids. This argument isn't simply New Testament creativity. It is Old Testament prophecy. Verse 17 and verse 20, again, quoting from what? Actually, verse 21, sorry. 17 and 21 are quoting from what? They're quoting from Psalm 110, which is in what part of the Bible? The Old Testament. Testament. Exactly. In other words, this is not, it's not just like the apostles came along and said, man, we need a really clever argument. We really, need, we really need a clever argument to show that Jesus is like way better than all the priests and all the temple. And they just wrote it down and said, see? No. They said, the Bible itself says. The Bible itself says, after the whole Levitical system had been set up, after there was a high priest after the order of Aaron, after there's a tabernacle, after the whole sacrificial apparatus is up and running and humming, after all of that, yet the writer of Psalm 110 prophetically says, there is a day coming when another priest will arise, not after the order of Aaron, but the ultimate priest will arise after the order of Melchizedek, which we all know now is way up here, way better. And that has two huge implications that the writer wants to be very clear to our hearts. First of all, it explains how Jesus can be a high priest and yet not be descended from Levi and Aaron. Verses 12 through 17 go into all of that. And secondly, he is trying to press into the hearts of his audience that from the very beginning, that whole Levitical system with all of its sacrifices, tabernacle, temple, from even before it was begun, it was built with an expiration date. 
verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, if, if, if the system that was set up under Moses with Aaron and the Levites, if, if that was really going to be the permanent solution, why would the Old Testament itself prophesy of another priest to come from the order that was superior? Verse 18. Indeed, he says, the former commandment is now set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. My friends, this has massive, massive implications. You're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to go away and think about it. But if Judaism, even as a religion, ancient or modern, if Judaism, as it's now called, if the Old Testament system had ever been intended to be a standalone or a permanent religion on the world scene, why would Judaism, the Old Testament itself, have included a prophecy that the core feature, the sacrificial system, would one day be superseded? It's a massive, massive implication. Judaism was never intended to be a permanent, standalone thing. It was to be fulfilled in Christ. It was to be one family. This is what the Apostle Paul is on about all the time. It was never intended to be standalone. The need for a better priest, the coming of Christ, is not a New Testament fairy tale or a fabrication or an invention. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. This also means that before Levi ever came forth from the heritage of Abraham, the whole system, Abraham and everybody that springs from him, which is ultimately how many of the Old Testament people of God? All of them. All of them by being put under Melchizedek, who was himself a picture of Jesus. It means all of them were put under the cross of Christ. That's big. Go away and think about that. But it's not just fun theology. It's supposed to connect to us today. That's why the writer is writing these words to people in the first century. Now, how is it supposed to connect to us today? Because it is to point us to the reality, both in the first century and in the 21st, that there is no flawed human being that can make you perfect. Nothing you and I can do, nothing that anybody else just wandering around this planet today can do, can make us perfect. And to understand why, we have to dial back a little bit and rem- remember, this was several weeks ago, even a couple months ago now, when we looked at Hebrews 4, And this is number three on your outlines, kids. What were priests supposed to do? Why did religions have priests to begin with? All priests, number three, all priests have two fundamental tasks. They are to pay and they are to pray. Priests are to act like bridges. Remember us talking about this probably back in May or early June? Priests are to act like bridges between humanity and the divine. In fact, one of the Latin words that was used in antiquity for priest, pontifex, means bridge builder. It was their job to restore and maintain harmony between God or the gods and humanity. They were the ones who were charged to make atonement, to bring back to one the divided parties. And how did they do that? By sacrifice, by bringing a sacrifice and by the big word here, intercession, by paying, that's what the sacrifice is for, and by praying. In other words, they would bring the payment and they would pray for the payment to be applied to the worshiper. That's what priests do. They pay and they pray. They bring and apply. But what happens if the priests themselves are flawed? 
What happens if there's a chink in the system itself? We don't have to imagine. The writer tells us in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, but it wasn't, verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. Perfection was unobtainable through the Old Testament system under Levi. It was unobtainable because the law could make no one perfect. Why not? Well, the writer tells us there's a couple reasons. Verse 23, the former priest kept dying. That's a problem. It's a, it's a problem not just in terms of the functionality of the system, but the wages of sin is death, and they died because they were flawed, which we see again brought to our attention in verse 27. Those former priests, they had to offer sacrifices every day. That tells us that there was something wrong with the sacrifices themselves. They weren't actually paying the bill. They could be a picture of the payment, but they weren't the payment itself. And then number one, that's number, that's number one and two. Number three, they had to bring sacrifices for their own sins. It's not just that the sacrifices were broken. The sacrificers were flawed. And so you have a, a whole system that just isn't going to finally work. The payment system is flawed. It has to keep being repeated. The payment's not going through. The card's not being accepted. Ever, ever had that awkward experience? It was denied. The sacrifices weren't going to finally work, and we'll talk more about that in chapters 9 and 10 in a few weeks. The ones who were bringing them were themselves flawed, and then they died. There's simply something deeply flawed at the heart of the system. And this is really bad news for the entire ancient world. Because of all ancient cultures in the entire ancient world, which one culture actually had revelation from the one true God? Israel. But now what we're seeing from Hebrews 7 is that even the Israelite system wasn't the ultimate solution. And if, if they were the best hope of antiquity and the best hope doesn't work, guess what? The world is in big, big trouble. What hope do these other pagan cultures have? if the best people on the block can't get the act together. The Levitical system, no human-designed system, could ever make us perfect. It will not work. It cannot work. And so you might ask, well, then, are the modern critics correct? Should we just abandon the hope of perfection? Is it, just, is it impossible? Is it dangerous? Is it flawed? Number five, kids, even if we would, even if we would try to abandon the standard of perfection, we cannot silence our conscience, can we? Yes. Yes, it is true that insisting on perfection can, if pursued the wrong way, be very dangerous. Yes, it can lead people to be undemanding, unsympathetic. It can even lead to struggles of mental health. I mean, I can tell you by way of testimony, I have lived for years with a person like this. Not my parents, not my wife, myself. This is what it means to struggle with OCD. It is, it is that desire for perfection by your own efforts, trying to make things right, trying to make things clean, and always, always failing. I know what that's like. I know the dark turns, and some of you do as well. But... If you stop trying, what happens? 
Your, your conscience doesn't get silent. Your conscience will never shut up. In fact, early 20th century, a great critic of Christianity, a guy by the name of H.L. Mencken. Any of you ever heard of him? H.L. Mencken had this to say about conscience. He said, conscience is that inner voice that warns us that somebody may be watching even those who, who want to push Jesus away know that you can't get the ultimate Easter egg out of your own heart. See, your conscience also is like an Easter egg. It is that voice that is warning you. There are greater realities. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is a call for perfection, and you cannot simply walk away from it. It is the ultimate cross-reference to the ultimate story, the story of the Bible, the story of humanity, the story of history, which tells us that all have sinned. Surely there is not a person who lives on earth who does what is good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Romans 6.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory, the perfection of God. Conscience tells us then, even if we try to ignore it, even if we say, well, I'm not going to be religious, even if you try to do all of that, your conscience will not shut up. Conscience is telling each and every one of us every day that we all need a priest. Not a broken Levitical priest that can't ultimately make us perfect, but we need a real priest. Not a flawed mortal who is weak and useless. God's own word, verse 18, weakness and useless. We need a better hope, verse 19. A better hope through which we can actually draw near to God. And we all know ultimately, don't we? That that hope cannot come from inside of ourselves because as verse 7 says so clearly, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. We need a blessing. We need a perfection from outside of us. We need what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. Not extraterrestrial, but supernatural. And that is the good news that comes through this chapter with all of its density the good news is that the ultimate superior did come to make us perfect. Not the priests in the order of Aaron, but the priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, God's own son. This is number six on your outlines, kids. That both the promise and the prophecy of Melchizedek converge. This one's easy. You know, sometimes, kids, I give you kind of challenging ones. If you don't get this one, come on. They converge on whom? Jesus, right? Easy. They converge on Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, whether or not Melchizedek was an actual appearance of Jesus, he is at least a pointer to him. King of righteousness, king of peace, one who lives. Who is this describing? Who else but our Lord Jesus Christ? And in verse 14, you can't see this in your English translations, but in verse 14, it says, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. You see that phrase? The, the, the word that's translated there, was descended, is actually literally, get this, dawned, like the sun rising. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 5 when he talks about the sun rising on the just and the unjust. And it is, again, another one of those Easter eggs pointing back to the same place in the Psalms. Psalm 110, verse 3, which says, Speaking to the Messiah, speaking to the priest after the order of Melchizedek, he says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. That is a prophecy of the resurrection. 
Can't see it in English, unfortunately, and none of the English translations get it, so it's not the ESV. It's not anybody's fault. It's just the way it is. But he is a priest forever. He has dawned from David. He has arisen in fulfillment of the promises made. And he is, verses 17 and 21, a priest forever because death can no longer touch him. Romans 6. And all of this, you say, well, it's so good. It's, so good. it's too good to be true. No. Verses 20 through 22, it has been locked in by God's own oath. Now, I know it has been about a month since we were at the end of Hebrews chapter 6. But remember talking about what the oath means? When God makes an oath, there's no hidden ifs, ands, or, or buts. It's locked in. And so the writer comes back here and says, it's locked in. It's guaranteed. And so what I want you to see this morning is that the so-called Easter egg of Melchizedek actually leads us to Easter itself. All of it's converging on Jesus himself. And what's so amazing, and this could really change your life if you go home with this and keep it. Number seven, it's not just that Jesus paid for us, it's that he still prays for us right now. Jesus Christ is praying for us right now. Verses 26 and 27 tell us, remind us that he paid for us. But verse 25 is just one of the sweetest points in the whole Bible. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, do you realize who is praying for you right now? You say, well, my pastor and my elders pray for me every week. Yes, we do. But we are bit players compared to the one who is praying for you right now. The Lord Jesus himself on the throne at the right hand of God is doing what right now? Praying for every believer in this church. Whether you are mature, whether you are weak, whether you are wise, whether you're foolish, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you are strong in faith or whether you struggle to believe whether you are totally sane in your mind or whether you are recovering obsessive-compulsive, He is praying for us this very moment. I gave you, this maybe the first time I've ever done this, I printed something from the larger catechism on your outline. How does Christ make intercession? By His appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of His obedience and sacrifice on earth, Declaring His will, that means He's praying to the Father, that all of His merit would be applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring, that means obtaining for them, quiet of conscience, notwithstanding our daily failings. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, do you believe that Jesus is praying for you today, right now? You better believe it because God's Word says it. He is praying that His perfection would cover all the flaws of your past. He is praying that His merit by the Spirit would be applied, that His life would be poured into you to transform your present. And He is praying that God will keep doing all of this until that day when we are gathered to Him and made perfect, unable to sin ever again. If you really believe this, this will change the way you live. It will give you hope in the hardest times. It's going to give you a strong reason not to sin. How can I sin when Jesus right now is praying for me not to sin? It will change everything about who you are. It's the big promise 
Remember I said at the very beginning, one of the big questions of all human religion is, is perfection an evil lie or a real promise? The big promise is that it's real. It is the truth. Perfection is not an evil lie, but it is a real promise to all who come to God through Jesus. And if I can end by just a bit of testimony, I mentioned to you earlier that I know what it is to struggle with obsessive-compulsive disorder. I am an undiagnosed obsessive-compulsive, never medically diagnosed, but all the symptoms. I know what this is like. You know what changed my life and what continues to help change me? And of course, there's always a medical side to these things. By God's providence, that never happened. My parents didn't know. But the spiritual side, you know what changed the spiritual side? Was as I learned and as I continue to learn that day by day I can transfer that burden of perfection into the hands of Jesus. It can change your life as it's changed mine. Will you trust him to be your perfection? Because our perfection, kids, number eight, our perfection lives today, not in ourselves, not in our efforts, but in the living prayers of Jesus. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we do pray that you would make clear to us just how good you are. That you would make clear to our hearts that although there are many wrong ways to seek perfection, and it's utterly wrong to abandon the search, that it is not an impossible thing because you have come and you have given us all we need. You've given us the merit of Christ to cover our past. You've given us the power in the spirit of Christ to transform our present. And you give us the promise of Christ as hope for the future. So help us to transfer this burden, which we all feel in our conscience, into the hands that hung the stars and that hung on the cross, the hands held out to us in the gospel, into the hands of Jesus. And may our hope live in his living prayers from this day forth to eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.